Stay standing with me for just a second. We're going to read God's Word. And uh, my name is Daniel. I'm the community pastor here. And it's my honor to get a chance to share with you for week four. I almost said week three. Week four of our series, This We Believe. And this is just such a powerful series. It's one that's really been near and dear to my heart because I'm passionate about us as Christ followers, not just having a blind faith and not having an ignorant faith, but having a faith where we know that we can trust in what we believe, that we know what we believe, and then we can trust in what we believe, that we're not just blindly following just what a book says, we're not blindly just following what a pastor says, we're blindly following what our parents say, but that we know what we believe and that we know why we believe it. So what we've been doing in this series, we've been looking at core beliefs that we share, not just beliefs here at Core Church, but beliefs that we share as the church universal, that most anyone who calls themselves a Christ follower, uh, you know, believes in these things as well. And so today we're going to be looking at communion. I hope it's something that, it, it takes something that we do every week and just sheds a brand new light on it. So if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22. And if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to download the Version Bible app from wherever you get your apps. And we're on that app. If you go to the events tab in that app, you can follow along with today's message. The scripture's there. There's a reading plan. You can stay on top of events happening here at the court at church, and you can take message notes as well. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 22. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation, and we're going to pick it up starting in verse 14. It says, when the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. But here at this table, sitting among us as a friend, is the man who will betray me. So we're going to talk about communion today, and we're going to read together our belief and our statement of belief about communion. And all these statements that we've been going through in this series, they're available on our website. Just go to the core beliefs section on there, you can see these all, all at once. But today we're going to talk about communion. So I would like for us to read this together and read this out loud. Here we go. We believe in the Lord's Supper. Communion is the remembering and appreciation of Christ's death on the cross. So Father, we come before you today. And as we look at communion, God, as we examine the elements, God, as we examine the history, as we examine what happened, we open up our hearts for you to speak to us today. God, we don't want to just leave with some head knowledge. God, we don't want to just leave knowing a couple of cool new facts. God, we want to leave being transformed by the grace that you show us through communion. And so, God, we open up our minds. We open up our hearts. God, would you speak to us today? Would you challenge us today? Would you grow us in our faith today? And if you're ready to hear from God, can I get a big amen? Amen. Awesome. You guys can be seated. Man, I love it. People applauding for the intro of the message. You're in for it. Man, it's going to be a good day today. Thank you. Um, so any baseball fans in the house? A couple of you. Awesome. Um, I am not a baseball fan, full, full disclosure. But 
once a year, my wife uh, at the company she works for, they have a driller's day at Driller Stadium. Now, if you've been to the new Driller Stadium, I want to tell you, it's pretty sweet. There is all kinds of stuff for kids to do and, and families to do. They have like, you know, of course, all the food vendors, and then they have bouncy houses, and they have a, like an actual like playground and a splash pad and all kinds of stuff, which is great because when the Surratts go to a baseball game, we go for everything but the baseball. And, and so we go, and man, we go to eat hot dogs, we go to eat ice cream, we go to drink soda, we go to play in the playground, you know, and the night that we went was even better because it was a fireworks night. And so we were then going to get some fireworks going after the baseball game. And so we're excited. This has kind of become a yearly tradition. And we go to the food. We get our, you know, we go to the, the game. I even called it the food. Look, that's how excited about the food <laughs> we are. So we go and got the hot dogs and we got the ice cream. And we learned our lesson on the ice cream, by the way. Uh, so if you've never been, they will serve you ice cream in a baseball helmet. And uh, so our oldest daughter, Olivia, who's nine, she was eight last year when we went, And we quickly learned that if you let an eight-year-old eat a baseball helmet full of ice cream, you will not get to see the end of the baseball game because you will have to take your child home because her stomach is now sick and you don't want her to throw up inside the brand new jeweler's ballpark. And so we learned our lesson with the ice cream. We paced ourselves. And so we're getting in, you know, having a great time. Kids are super excited to see the fireworks, which happen after the game. So the game's going seventh inning, eighth inning, ninth inning. And as we get into the ninth inning game is tied. And as you know, we are just now all praying, God, do not let this thing go in to extra innings. So setting all that up, two seats down from me on my right, there is a gentleman from the greater generation, and he is sitting there, and um, he is there for the exact opposite reason that my family is there. We are there for everything but the baseball. But this, this man was an absolute diehard baseball fan. He's sitting there. Not only is he watching the game, but he's got earbuds in and he's listening to the game on the radio. So you just picture this, this man here. You know, he's decked out. He's got his jeweler's polo on. He's got his cargo khaki shorts, his white New Balance shoes, his white crew socks. Was painting you a picture, you know, and then so he's watching the game. He's listening to the game. But not only that, but he's got his, he's got paper and a pencil and he's taking stats on the game. And I'm looking over at him like, Sir, they keep the stats for you on the scoreboard. You don't have to do this yourself. They do it for you. They're right there. But he's keeping his own stats. And so we go in, ninth inning. We're just praying now at this point, God, let anyone score. I don't care if it's the drillers. I don't care if it's Arkansas. Just someone, please hit a run so we can see the fireworks. And of course, does not happen. So we're headed into extra innings. So I quickly pull out my phone and I research, you know, hey, because in minor leagues, I'm like, please let there be something where they don't have to play a full inning. Maybe they just call it after, you know, it's like, hey, Ty, everyone gets a juice box. You know, you guys all did great. But <laughs> I, I found, so I find out that in minor leagues, they start extra innings with a runner already on second to try to speed up the game. And so the gentleman then looks at me, uh, leans over and says, hey, do you know about the minor league baseball rule? And I said, yes, or I actually just just looked it up. They start with the runner on second. And then, then he says this to me in, in the most sincere, tender, I don't know if there was like a twinkle of tear in his eye or somebody looks over me and says this, kid you not, word for word, he says, why would anyone want to speed up baseball? <laughs> S- 
Sir, I have three reasons right here, my children, Olivia, Claire, and Andrew, who would be more than happy to tell you why we need to speed this game up a little bit. Thank the good Lord, someone scored a run in the 10th. I don't even know who it was. And then we got to the fireworks. So today, as we talk about communion, I think it's a really important conversation for us to have because I think there's many of us, I might even say most of us here in this room, our understanding of communion is kind of like my understanding and appreciation of baseball. It's like, yeah, it's, it's, you know, I kind of get it. You know, we have the bread and we have the cup and body and blood. You know, I've heard about that. And I kind of get it, but, but, you know, it's just kind of a small part of the bigger thing that's happening. Like for us, when we went to the baseball stadium, the baseball was just a small part of the bigger thing that was happening, the food and, you know, the play yard and just all that kind of stuff. But, but what if we could have an appreciation for communion that was like this man's appreciation for baseball? What if we could understand it in a way that moved us? What if we could understand it in a way that's so much deeper than, than uh, just surface and, and in a way that even people around us might be like, man, this, this person's really into communion. But what if we could understand communion in a way like this man did where we have a deep appreciation for it? So he understood the history of baseball. He understood the nuance of baseball. He understood the ins and outs of baseball in a way that I absolutely had no idea. And I think as we learn more about communion, as we unpack it a little bit today, my hope and prayer for us is that we're going to have a love for it, that we're going to have an appreciation for it that's going to cause us to experience it and, and receive it in a way that we've never done before. See, I know for a lot of us here in this place, we have a lot of different experiences with communion. Some of you, you grew up in a tradition where you didn't even call it communion. You called it something like the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper. Some of you grew up in a tradition where you used a fancy term for it, and you called it the Eucharist, and that, and that just made you sound a lot smarter, which is, you know, great for you. And then, you know, we experience communion, some of you, at different times, like here at Core Church, we do communion every week, and we're going to talk today about why we do it every week. I didn't grow up in that kind of tradition. I grew up where we did communion every month, and so we did it once a month. Some of you, you grew up in a church where you did communion just kind of whenever, uh, you know, the pastor felt led to do it. So it was kind of maybe on a special occasion or just, you know, kind of at random times. Some of you, you grew up in a church or maybe you didn't grow up in church and you've never experienced communion before. You're looking at these tables and you're like, cool, it looks like they have snacks after the service. That's kind of nice. I like that. Uh, some of you, you know, it's different people that have been eligible to receive communion. Some of you, it was only church members that could do it. Or others, it was only after you've taken a class that you could receive communion. For some, it was, hey, everyone and anyone is welcome to receive communion at the table. You know, for some, there was different ideas of, of what communion is. You, you learned big words like transubstantiation and consubstantiation. You had different ideas of how communion was supposed to be received. Like some of you, it was grape juice. But some of you, you grew up in a church where they served real wine at communion. So quick story on that. So when I was in college, uh, a friend of mine invited me to a midnight Christmas Eve service at her Lutheran church. And so I had never been to a Lutheran church before. So I'm like, that sounds cool. I will, I will go check that out. So we went to this midnight Christmas Eve service at this Lutheran church, and they well, were getting ready to receive communion. And so at the church, they have these big um, altars at the front of the sanctuary where you go down and you kneel at the altar, and then the pastor comes and gives you the bread and gives you the cup to receive the communion. So I go up, you know, do, 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 sit, kneel down at the altar, and uh, the pastor gives me the bread and then gives me the cup. And once again, if you're new to church, the Lutherans don't use grape juice. 
they use real wine. And so as I received the cup, before I could get the words back in my mouth, because I'm just a college idiot at this age, before I could get the words back in my mouth and embarrass myself in front of this congregation full of nice Lutherans that I've never met, these words blurt out, I drink the cup, and I say, oh, that's the real stuff. <laughs> idiot. So then, of course, I got up, went further down the communion line, and said, I'll have another. No, I didn't, I didn't do that. <laughs> Did not do that. So why are we taking time today to talk about something that is just such a small portion of our service? And the reason why is this. Here at Core Church, we take communion on a weekly basis. And what I think we have to guard against is we have to guard against communion just kind of becoming this familiar thing that loses its impact for us. See, there's an old saying that says familiarity breeds contempt, but I think if we're not careful Familiarity doesn't breed contempt, but familiarity will breed indifference. And if we're not careful, we'll grow indifferent to the elements that are presented here at the table. But what we're going to look at today, I hope is going to totally reframe for you how you see the bread and how you see the cup and how you see the table, that it's going to totally shine a new light on it for you, that we're going to go back today all the way to the very first communion, to that last supper. But we're not even going to stop there because that Last Supper was actually the fulfillment of 1,500 years of prophecy, 1,500 years of God foreshadowing his redemption. And we're going to take a look at that. And I think as we look back over 3,500 years of God working a story of salvation, that we're going to cause ourselves to see community in a completely different way. And I think it's going to be something where, just like my friend at the baseball game, we're going to look at it with a renewed sense of awe and a renewed sense of of wonder as we come to the table at the close of the service today. So you guys ready to get into this with me? Yeah. Awesome. Let's do it. Man, more applause. I love whoever's applauding. You just keep that up in Jesus' name. That is awesome. So let's start with the very first communion. Now, once again, this happened on the night Jesus was betrayed. And so Judas had gone to the priests. He's gone to the religious leaders. And he said, what will you give me if I turn Jesus over to you? And so they arranged the price, the 30 pieces of silver. Some of you have made heard that term before, whether or not you've grown up in church. And so he's arranged this price. And so this is the night Jesus knows he's getting ready to die the next day. He knows he's getting ready to go to the cross. And so this is the context in which we find the very first communion, the Last Supper. And let's pick it up in verse 15. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins, this Passover meal. See, what we have to understand is the first communion looked very different from what we have here today. That this was not just a snack. This was not just a cracker and a juice box. This was not just a small table with a decorative black cloth and, you know, cool fake candle because we don't trust you guys with real candles. So, you know, this was not that. This was not if you grew up in a church that had a giant, you know, in remembrance of me table. This was not even that. And so what, what this was was this was an actual meal. And this was, so this was guys sitting down together to have an actual meal together. And this was not just any meal, but this was a Passover meal. And it's very significant that the first communion happened during Passover. It's very significant. This was not accidental timing. This was very on purpose that it happened during Passover. And it's important for us to understand this context because I don't know about you guys, but I am not Jewish. I mean, you couldn't tell by looking at me, but I'm not Jewish. And so for, for us 
You remember, the Bible was written in a completely different historical context and a cultural context. And so there's things that happen in the Bible that are hard for us to understand because we don't know the culture in which it happened. And this is one of those things that the significance of it kind of gets lost on us because unless you grew up in a traditional Jewish household, you're going to miss some of the things that happened during this meal. So this is what we're going to unpack today. We're going to unpack communion through the lens of Passover. We're going to unpack why this had to happen during this time and what Passover is and how it impacts how we view communion. I think it's going to cause us to see it in a completely different way. So what is Passover? Passover is the time when the Jewish people remember their deliverance from Egypt and from Pharaoh. So if you remember the old movie, The Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston, let my people go. This this is the thing that we're talking about. It's one of the most holy days, one of the most holy uh, rituals on the Jewish calendar. And, And so this is the meal that Jesus and the disciples are eating together, the Passover meal. And so I wanna look at some of these elements of the Passover meal. Now, one of the things that would have happened during the Passover meal is they would have eaten a lamb together. That would have been the main course of the meal. Now, I did not bring a lamb roast because about this time you all start to get hungry, and I know if I have a large chunk of roast meat up here, I will lose you for the rest of the message. You'll be thinking about lunch. You'll be thinking about where can I get a lamb roast? Maybe we'll get euros after the service. No, I need you to stay with me. So I did not bring the lamb roast, but just suffice to say that they would have had a lamb roast at this. Now, this is really significant of of why this happened. I want to explain why they ate lamb during Passover. So during this time, remember, it's, it's Moses versus Pharaoh. Moses is fighting for the freedom of the Jewish people. And so he goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. Nine times this happens where Moses cries out to God. God sends a plague to the nation of Egypt. So this was the, the water turning to blood and flies and locusts and darkness and all this kind of stuff. You can read about this in the book of Exodus. And so nine times this happens. Moses goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says no. So the 10th time, is when all the stops come out and God has to do something so extreme that he knows for sure that Pharaoh will not be able to resist any longer and release the people of Israel. So the 10th plague is this plague of death where the firstborn of every household will die. But God provides a way out. He says to Moses, anyone who who sacrifices a lamb and places that blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the house will not experience death, but death will pass over that house. And so the people of Israel went and put sacrificed these lambs and, and then put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over that house and everyone in the house would be saved. And this is so significant as we talk about, Pass, about Passover and about communion because once again, the disciples would have understood this because as Jesus shows up on the scene, John the Baptist looks at Jesus and he says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You may have heard this term that Jesus is the Lamb of God and wondered what the heck that is, what the heck we're talking about here. Well, a lot of that comes from this discussion of Passover because Jesus is the Lamb of God. He was sent and he was sacrificed and he was crucified so that when his blood, when his sacrifice is applied to the doorpost of our life, it's applied to the doorpost of our heart, that the judgment of God, that the, the, the judgment and wrath of God would not come down on us, but rather that judgment and death passes 
over us. Why? Not because we're good, not because of the things you've done, but because of the sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God. That's a good place to say amen, church. So that by his sacrifice, we escape death and we find life. And so the lamb is one of the big symbols of Passover. Let's get into some of the stuff that we kind of know from communion. Let's first of all look at the bread. Let's pick it up in verse 19. It says, he, Jesus, took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So during Passover, the Jewish people would eat unleavened bread. And what that is, it's simply bread that did not have any yeast in it. And the reason they would eat unleavened bread is because they wanted to remember that when Pharaoh released them, they had to quickly gather their things and go. Like they didn't have time to sit around and bake cookies and bake, you know, they had to quickly get a meal and get out of Egypt before Pharaoh changed their mind. And so they didn't have time to bake bread the normal way. They didn't have time to put yeast in it. So they made this bread. They didn't have any yeast. It was flat. It was kind of tasteless. And so every Passover, they eat unleavened bread to remember their escape from Egypt, to remember how quickly they had to leave the, the rule of Pharaoh. And so one of the traditions that comes out of the Passover meal is what Jesus did. You know, Jesus took bread and broke it. And so they would take this bread and they would break the bread. And this is a tradition that's called the afikomen, the afikomen. Now, if you are Jewish here and I totally butchered that, I'm sorry, I'm not Jewish once again, but this is, you can correct me after the service. So it's called the afikomen. So what they would do is take the bread and they would break it and then they would take this broken piece of bread and wrap it in a cloth. And then they would take the cloth, the bread wrapped in the cloth, and they would go and hide it away. And then the children after the dinner would go and search for the bread wrapped in the cloth, and they would find it and then bring it back to the table, and everyone would eat it together. And I can just imagine as this is happening, as, as Jesus is setting up this Passover, and especially after, after the resurrection, after the crucifixion, and the disciples had time to kind of reflect on this, that the light bulbs just would have started going off for them as they did this, because they would realize that Jesus said, this bread is my body, and it's broken for you. And the body of Jesus was broken, and it was taken, and it was wrapped in a cloth, and then it was hidden away in a tomb, but it didn't stay there because anyone who would go to search for him with childlike faith would be able to find him and would be able to partake of the fellowship that they would have, the healing that they would have, and find life in Jesus. See, for the Jewish people, this bread represented deliverance from Egypt. It represented deliverance from the bondage of Pharaoh. But for us today, as we come to the table, as we eat the bread together, it doesn't represent deliverance from the bondage from another country, from Egypt, but it represents deliverance from the bondage of our sin, deliverance from the bondage of our oppression, deliverance from the bondage of our guilt, deliverance from the bondage of our shame. Come on, somebody. Deliverance from the bondage of our addiction. His body was broken for us that we could come to know him. And I just love how God works. In week two of this series, we talked about how the Old Testament provides the context for the New Testament, provides the context for salvation. And I just love seeing how God took something 1,500 years old and started weaving the story of salvation in it. That he started revealing to us that, that this thing just points towards Jesus, that it points towards him. And as the disciples would have looked at it, they would have seen 
Isaiah 53 would have come to their mind. And Isaiah 53, one of the most famous prophecies about the Messiah, says that the Messiah's body would be crushed. It would be broken for us, that he would go as a lamb to the slaughter. And as they had this Passover meal, when they broke the bread and they ate the lamb, all this imagery would have come to them that, wow, this isn't talking about Egypt anymore. This isn't talking about something. This is talking about what Jesus has done for us. And God's weaving his story of salvation throughout the entirety of the book, guys, throughout the Old Testament pointing toward Jesus and the New Testament as we see his life and we get to now reflect back on it. We see his plan, his story of salvation. As we come to eat of the, of the bread today, man, we remember our deliverance. We remember our salvation. We remember that we were dead in sin, but his body was broken so that we could know life in him. So let's talk about the cup. In verse 20, it says, after supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. So in studying this, I learned something I never knew before, learned something I never knew, that Jesus took the cup in verse 20, but it's actually the second time he takes the cup in the chapter. In verse 17, he takes a different cup. And I never put this together before because, once again, not Jewish. And so, but there was actually four different cups that they would take during Passover, four different cups. And, and so that really throws off our Holy Grail mythology. You know, it's like we're going to have to remake Monty Python and remake Indiana Jones because it wasn't just one cup. You know, there were actually four cups. And so, so what were these four cups? So the first cup represented deliverance from the burden of Egypt. And they would actually drink this cup very early in the night. And then the second cup would represent deliverance from bondage. Now, the fourth cup represented presence and praise, a celebration of God's presence with his people. So Jesus drank from the third cup. Once again, let's look at verse 20. After supper, he took another cup of wine. And we know that it's the third cup just of where it happened in the meal. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup, this cup, this third cup, is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. So what is the third cup? The third cup was called the cup of redemption. And this was such a huge concept because all of this time up through history, up until this point, up until this meal, redemption for the people of Israel had always been a partial process and had always been a halfway thing. They would sacrifice these animals, these sheep and these goats and these cattle to, to buy another year, basically, to pay the penance for the sin, and then they had to push it another year. And once again, they have to sacrifice it again, year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice, trying to live up to the law, trying to do right, but never being able to do it, having to sacrifice these animals in order to buy redemption for another year. And so Jesus shows up. Do not miss this. Jesus shows up on the scene and says, this cup, this cup of redemption now represents the new covenant, the new thing, the new work that I'm establishing with my people. No longer will your redemption be based on your sacrifice. No longer will your redemption be based on your ability to keep the law. No longer will your redemption be based on your ability to do good, but rather redemption is now purchased 
through my blood. Redemption is now purchased through the blood of Jesus. And I've got good news for you, church. That redemption is not partial. That redemption is not incomplete. That redemption is not halfway. That means every sin that you've committed, every time you've fallen short, every time you've had a harsh word that you've spoken, every time you've outbursted in anger, every time you've looked in lust, every time you've done something that you've regretted, your forgiveness is not partial. Your forgiveness is not incomplete. Your forgiveness is full, paid by the new covenant of Christ. That is who he is, a sacrifice. And when we come to the table, this is what we remember when we drink the cup. We remember that, that we have no ability for redemption, that we have no ability to do it on our own. You can't be good enough. You can't do good enough that your redemption is only found in the sacrifice of Jesus. When we partake of the cup, this is what we remember, that it's a reminder that we were once held captive to sin. We were once held in slavery, but now no longer. Now we're free. Now we're brand new. I love what John Wesley, one of the the heroes and and fathers of our our, uh, faith, said. He said communion. He called it a means of grace. It's a Bonus theological term for you today, a means of grace. And what that means is that communion is a way for us to remember, but also to tangibly interact with, to tangibly receive the grace of God. That when I come to the table, when I come and and receive the bread, and when I come and receive the cup, I'm I'm not just receiving something, but but I'm interacting with the grace of God that's represented in that bread, that's represented in that cup, that when I take that bread, it's the grace of God is the reason why Jesus was broken on that cross for me. It's the grace of God. It's why those nails were driven into his hands and into his feet that his blood was shed for me. When I take this, it's a means of interacting with and of receiving that grace for myself. And I want to tell you something, church. When, when we look at it like that, we, we can't come to the table flippantly. We, we can't come to the table just in familiarity, just, oh, it's just another communion. We come to that. When we understand it like that, church, it changes everything about communion that we come to, and it's the grace of God that we get to interact with, that we get to receive for ourselves. And that's why it's such a holy moment. That's why it's such a sacred moment that we can interact with the grace of God. So we've talked about you know, the lamb and the bread and, and the cup, but there's one more element of communion that I think goes unnoticed and kind of gets forgotten about, but I think it's the most powerful one. How could I say that? Even more powerful than the bread. I think it's the element that holds all the other elements together. And we see this here in verse 21. But here at this table, but here at this table, sitting among us as a friend, is the man who will betray me. And once again, remember, this is Jesus' last meal that he gets to have with these guys. These guys that he's known for three years, the guy that he's lived with and he's done life with and he's done ministry with for the last three years. They've gone to town and town. They've traveled together. They've worked together. They've laughed together. They've cried together. And it's the last chance he has to sit down and eat with these guys. Now, I want you to imagine this for yourself. Imagine that you're getting ready to, let's not use die because that's really dark, okay? Let's imagine you're getting ready to move away to a different continent, And let's pretend just for a second that there's no Facebook, there's no email, that once you move away, you're never going to see the people that you move away from. Again, some of you are like, how do I sign up for that? Anyways, um, (laughs) 
And so imagine that you're getting ready to do this, and you get to have one last meal with 12 people, any 12 people that you choose. I went through this mental exercise myself, and you know, it was, was kind of cool. Most of you weren't there, you know, but uh, <laughs> imagine you're getting ready to go. Just the intimacy of that moment as you sit around this table together. And for Jesus, just I, I love how this image just shows his humanity. Yes, Jesus was fully God. We talk about the deity of, of Christ a lot, but also he was fully man. And in this moment, I just imagine as he's looking around this table with these guys that he's done life with, he's thinking, Man, I remember, when I, I remember when I told Peter to throw the net over the other side and just the look on his face. And I remember calling James and John out of their father's fishing business. And I remember calling Matthew, a tax collector, and everyone's looking at me like, what, you know, what, what was I doing when I called the tax collector to be my follower? And I remember, I remember Peter's face when he got out of the boat and fell in the water and he's just flailing around like a fish. That was pretty funny. You know, just, just imagine Jesus looking at his guys and just having these moments as he's remembering the life that he had with him. And I think his last request is so telling of his humanity because I think it's not too far off of what any of us would want in a similar moment like this is Jesus is sitting around with 12 of his best friends. He knows he's getting ready to go to the cross. He knows he's getting ready to die. He knows he's getting ready to pay the sacrifice. He's getting ready to be tortured in one of the, historically, one of the harshest ways to die. Jesus is getting ready to go endure that. So he's looking around at these guys and he's saying, hey, Every time you get together after this, I'm not going to be here anymore. It's not going to be like this again. And when you get together and, and when you celebrate together and when you break bread together and when you drink of the cup together, guys, when you do this, will you do me a favor? You remember me? You remember my sacrifice? Will you not forget about what I'm getting ready to do? Will you cherish it? Will you treasure it? Will you remember me, guys, I'm getting ready to leave. It's, I, I won't be able to sit around the table like this with you anymore. It's not, everything's getting ready to change, and I just want to know that when I leave, you won't forget what's getting ready to happen. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And this is why we take communion every week here at this church, because we're so prone to forget. I'm so prone to forget. I'm so prone to just let the nails and let the, the crown of thorns and let the beatings and to, to let the spit and to let the, the cursing just kind of become another story and just kind of become another thing. But when I come to the table, what happens is I'm confronted again with the sacrifice. I'm confronted again with the price of my salvation. And I'm forced to say, Jesus, I don't, I don't forget. I remember. I remember the cost. I remember the price that you paid to buy my freedom. And that's why we take communion the way we do. That's why we take communion at the frequency that we take it, because we don't want to forget. We don't want to forget. We're so prone to forget. We don't want to forget his sacrifice for us. But, but what I think that we, we miss in the table is, is this, is that so sitting at this table this last night, as Jesus is getting ready to go and be turned over and ready to be crucified, Judas is sitting at this table with him. And Judas He's not getting ready to betray Jesus. He's already done it. He's already gone and talked to the high priest. He has 30 pieces of silver jingling around in his pocket. He's already done it. And Jesus says, sitting here at this table as one of my friends is the man who will betray me. And I want to tell you something, church. Every time we see table in scripture, it's representative of fellowship. It's representative of relationship. 
And the, the image of the table is what I want you to get as we, as we get ready to close, is that for all of us, all of us in this place, we have been Judas at one time or another. That all of us, we've betrayed God. We've done things that we know are contrary to what he wants us to do. We've sold God out for money. We've sold God out chasing pleasure. We've sold God out. I've sold God out doing things what I want to do, chasing after my own selfish desires, chasing after my own way. Just like Judas did, we've all done it. All of us sit here this morning guilty, and yet Jesus says, I want you at the table. I want you at the table. What I don't want you to miss this morning is this, church, that the reason why we have communion, the reason why the bread and the cup mean something, the reason why the cross and the blood and the body broken for us, the reason why he did it, the reason why we remember it, church, is not just to remember the sacrifice, but it's for us to remember why the sacrifice happened. And the reason why the sacrifice happened is so that you and I, once enemies of God, once people that wanted nothing to do with him, once people that said, God, I don't need you. God, I reject you. God, I want to do my own thing. God, I want to do what makes me feel good. God, I want to chase after my own thing. That even though we said that, that it's through the cross, it's through the sacrifice, it's through the blood and the body broken for us, that we can sit at God's table that we can have relationship with him, that we can have fellowship with him. This is why all of this matters. This is why all of this is something that we need to cherish and remember week in and week out. It's because his body was broken, his blood was shed so that I could know him, so that I could sit at his table, so that I could somehow in my sin, in my brokenness, in my fault, in my failure, have an intimate, have an intimate relationship with the God of the universe. See, communion is a ritual that is rooted in relationship. Communion is a ritual that is rooted in relationship. The whole reason all of this happens, the whole reason we do this, is not because we're morbid, it's not because we're trying to, it's because of the table. He wants us at his table, that he wants fellowship, he wants relationship, he wants to sit with us our brokenness, our shame, our filth. We're all Judas. We've all betrayed him. We've all turned our back on him and said, you can sit at the table with me. I know what you've done, but you can sit at the table with me. I know the thoughts you think, but you can sit at the table with me. I know the things that you do behind closed doors when no one else is watching, but you can sit at the table with me. I know the things that you hide in your heart, but you can sit at the table with me. I know the things that keep you up at night, but you can sit at the table with me because I've paved the way through the sacrifice of my son. I've paved the way through the body that was broken and through the blood that was shed so that we could sit at the table with him. That's what communion is, church. And so would you stand with me today?